Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Be seated. We have seen on the Sermon on the Mount that it's all about how to enter the kingdom of God and what the Christian actually looks like. The sermon is a constant reminder to us of what that Christian really is. And it's always helpful for us to go back from time to time and look at the Sermon on the Mount and remind ourselves of the traits that are to be indicative of a person who calls themselves a Christian. And it's, I've mentioned this passage before, but it's always fitting for us. And as we talk about uh, these matters today of us being the salt of the earth and the light of the world, I just want to remind ourselves as we go through this portion of Scripture and the passages we'll look at, that we'll always be thinking about 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, which says, Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? It's fitting that we always keep that passage in mind as we take a look at the Christian who is called to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Last week we finished what is known as the Beatitudes, those who are blessed if they are poor in spirit and humble uh, and the like. And we'll deal this week with two great truths about what a disciple or a citizen of the kingdom is like. Jesus said, and he was speaking to his disciples, remember, his church, and he says, you, dealing with them individually, but then corporately, His true people, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. And as we go through this message today, you need to be, we all need to be asking ourselves, no matter how long we profess the Lord Jesus Christ, is Jesus Christ in me? What 2 Corinthians 13 says. Am I the salt of the earth? Am I the light of the world? And it's a vital question because the way we answer that, our souls are at stake. They really are. And so as a preacher of the gospel, I put it bluntly, there is a a difference between a nominal Christian and a genuine one. And this section of the Sermon on the Mount brings that out. This is not, when I say that uh, the scripture says that we are called to be the salt of the earth and light of the world, this is not a, a work salvation mentality. Not at all. Uh, it's, 
It's the very nature of the gospel. This is what the gospel is. This is what happens when the gospel comes to men in its saving reality. When the gospel comes in its saving reality, it does make us the salt of the earth. It does make us the light of the world. And so as we, it should be evident as we progress in the message today, that I'm not exaggerating when I say that this is what the real Christian is all about. And so these two declarations, salt and light, uh, this is what the Christian is presented with. And this is how we are to be, and therefore this is how we should live in this world. And that should become very evident as we go through and understand the nature of salt and nature of light. So I trust that you understand that last week we were talking about that being a Christian is not very popular in this world, that we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And and there's a close correlation between the passages today and last week's message. Now, remember, the world, we're told, Jesus says, the world loves its own. And because it loves its own, it doesn't persecute its own. But the world hates those who are not like them. And because we're not like the world, that's why the world persecutes us. And it's very pertinent to us because, as it it should become very evident as we go through, that being the salt of the earth and being the light of the world is not necessarily going to be very popular at all. And because we are the salt, because we are the light, we're going to be persecuted by the world. And so we see that when Jesus says that we are the salt of the earth, it not only is describing what we are as a Christian, but it's telling us of the implications of what the world will be like, uh, of what it really is like. In saying that we're the salt, And in saying we're the light, it tells us something about the world, does it not? Now, if individual Christians are salt, the church is salt. Individual Christians are the light and the church. And when I say this, I am going to be referencing the invisible church, the true people of God. Because that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. He's speaking to his disciples. That's what true citizenship in the kingdom is. It is reference to do to those who are genuinely his. And so we have to ask ourselves all the time, am I genuinely one of his? Now, <clears throat> saying that we individually and as the church are the salt and the light of the world, what that tells us is that the world is then rotten, isn't it? It's putrid. It's offensive. It's corrupt. If we're the salt of the earth, we need to understand then, what is the function of salt? So as to understand what Jesus is meaning here when he tells us that we are the salt of the earth. And so there's two primary functions of salt, as we understand the scripture. And the first primary function of salt is that it is a preservative. And prior to the days of refrigeration, if you wanted to preserve food, you put salt on it. Now, 
how does it work? Well, scientifically, this is how it works. It inhibits bacterial growth. And food spoils when microorganisms feed on that surface. And when they feed on that surface, they release harmful toxins to humans. Now, in a technical term, salt is what they call a hypertonic environment in which, here's what it does. It, it robs the bacteria from the essential water, and so it just shrivels up. And, and so, as some would say, in, in a less sophisticated way, we say, we'll just let things dry out. And so what salt does, it just takes that moisture from the, the, those bacteria, and they just can't lift it. And that's why you coat it with that. And so it is a preservative. So salt prevents the putrefaction of food. It prevents the decaying of food. Now, Jesus says he's not using it. He's using a common way of preserving food items in this sense. But he's using it in a spiritual sense, right? He says you are the salt of the earth. So how are we then spiritually salt? Well, do I need to convince you that the world is corrupt? I don't think so. The world is a decaying mess. And Jesus, remember Jesus declared the Pharisees and the scribes as whitewashed tombs. He says, you look good on the outside, but inside you are this rotting flesh. And therefore, he says, you may be outwardly religious, but inwardly you have no part of me. And so, brethren, we need to let this sink in. The world Without you and I, the world without the church will remain a stinking, foul mess and will even get worse. That's how important we are. The world needs us. America needs the true church to save it from sinking into further degradation. And the question is, are we like that individually? Are we like that corporately as the church? Are we the salt that's going to stay the tide of God's ultimate destruction of us? You know, in this regard, Isaiah, remember Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says that our sins have separated us from our God. And his, our sins have hidden us from him that he will not hear uh, but the thing about it is, that may be true of the world, but the Christian is dominated by the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. And therefore, our presence in the world keeps it from decaying. We are truly a sanctifying influence in a dark world. That's what we're supposed to be. That's what the genuine Christian really is. The true church of, of the Lord Jesus, the invisible church, his people, they are a sanctifying influence. And therefore, we are the hope for the world. We really are. 
We're the salt of the earth. And I got, guess I have to ask you, do, do you constantly have that perspective of the significance that you are in this culture? Because you need to have that always about you. How important you really are in this culture in which you live. So do you view your church? I mean, does the church view itself as being that significant? Do you see yourself, ask yourself, am I a moral preservation of our culture in some regard, personally? Are things different because we're there? I mean, you can talk about your work. Let's talk about your work, wherever it is. Is the work environment different because you're there? Do people think differently and do they act differently because you're there? Let's talk about your school. And let's even talk about a Christian school. And you may say, well, a Christian school, I mean, it's a Christian school. We don't have sin. <laughs> Hey, listen, we were part of the Christian school for many years. Sin is everywhere, and and I don't have to convince you that either. So in your school life, ask yourself, am I a sanctifying influence in my class? What is the impact that I have around my peer uh, students? Not only in Christian, we're at college. It, what, what kind of impact am I having in my college setting? Well, let's talk about, you know, recreation, you know, in the athletic field. I mean, is it, is it different? Are, are you different? Am, am, am I a preservative in how I recreate? And so the, the, the question that I'm basically asking you this, and it's a sobering question, is do people around us see us differently? Do, uh, we're talking about salt now, but do they see us as salt? Do they see us as light? Are we really making a difference because of our presence? And, um, I mean, it should be different. And you can only, oftentimes, when people know that you're a Christian and when you come into the setting, sometimes they will uh, stop saying certain things or uh, certain jokes will stop. When I was in Texas and I played tennis deliberately on these Saturdays just to get to know men, uh, it didn't take long because I told them I was a preacher. Of course, when I tell them I'm a preacher, that puts me on the spot, too. Not only just a Christian, but a preacher. I a preacher. i got to watch what happens. So if it's not going well, you know, what's my attitude? <laughs> but I can remember occasions there was one man who liked to tell lewd jokes all the time. And uh, I would just kind of just make myself fuck away. Well, after a, a while... 
I remember he started in on a joke, and I just got up, danced, and I walked out on the court getting ready to play, you know, doubles. And as I was walking away, he said, oh, John, John, it's, it's not that bad. I, it's, I'm not going to say anything bad. And he, so he was going to change this whole thing because he knew it was going to offend me. So it affected him not telling his new joke that he normally did. Now, what would be sad is, something, and, but that is the influence that you're going to see. If they really know that you are, if I may say, I shouldn't have to say this, a serious Christian. I mean, we all Christians should be serious. But when people really know where we stand, it does have a way to impact things that they say around us. Uh, they say, well, yeah, let's go. As they get ready to blurt out a profanity, no, well, well, I didn't really mean that. Or, or they're going to shut down. Because, and what is that? That's, that's a preservative, isn't it? Isn't it acting like salt, at least at, at that point in time? Well, yes. Well, guess what? When you say that you're a Christian, you do put yourself in the spotlight. But that's where you're supposed to be, in the spotlight. But it does present you and I with a great opportunity to be a salt and a light in a a culture that needs help. Well, let's discuss it on on a national level for a moment. As we were mentioning in the Sunday School Hour, you you and I understand just how serious the uh, America cultural climate is right now. And it is safe to say, would you not agree, it's fast, putrefying, big time. It really is. I mean, <clears throat> sensuality and the loss, it's just a given, a given lifestyle in America now. Things, uh, television, movies, uh, books, all of it. It's just bombarding us with a lifestyle that is in rebellion against God. That's the way it is in America. And... Uh, our culture encourages sexual immorality on a large scale. That's just the way it is. The whole gay marriage thing is revealing basically just how fast we are declining. So the point here is, why has that happened to America? And to a large degree, you know where we're going to have to put the blame? We're going to have to put, to a large degree, the blame Right where the scripture says, it says the judgment of God begins with the household of faith, with the visible church. The church is to be that soul. It is to be the preserver of the culture. And as we're going to see, the church is to be the light to a world in darkness. And if our culture is declining... Now, it is true there can be faithful people in a culture that is declining, but we do have to ask ourselves, uh, why is that the case? Where is the church? And you look at the church first, and if you don't see a, a faithful heralding of the gospel message, you can say right there is the most serious problem. In that regard... You know, the greatest judgment that can ever come upon a culture 
talking about how bad it is that we got homosexuality running rampant and we want to legitimize gay marriage and, and all of that. But the scripture says the worst form of judgment is a famine of the word of God. As I talk to other preachers in our denomination, we seem to all, and, and ruling elders, we're all seeming to understand that we are experiencing in our time a famine of the word of God. And you know what God does when he really judges a nation? He takes away the influence of his church. In the Old Testament, he removed the prophets. When you don't have a prophet, you're in real serious trouble. What that means, God says, it's virtually over for you. I've taken away my mechanism to bring you to repentance. And so I'll take away your preachers from you. And in, and in Jerusalem, that's what he did. He took away the prophets, and then it was over for Jerusalem. So we are, as the church of the Lord Jesus, we're the last holdout. The church uh, needs to be that preservative influence in our culture. And if we're not, what did Jesus say? If the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It's good for nothing. And it will be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Which really brings us to that second aspect of salt. Because salt... What does it do? It uh, adds taste to food. It magnifies. It's a savior, a savor. And, and therefore, salt makes a positive difference in the taste of various food items. So now, how is the Christian and how is the church a salt in that regard? Well, <clears throat> it makes a positive difference to us in that regard. When we are transformed by the power of God, by the Holy Spirit, we are a different people. We are a different people when we have experienced the regenerating work of the Lord our God. And when that happens, it affects everything around us. There are some church historians who have said that one reason why England did not sink into the bloody revolution that was like in France in the late 1700s, was in part due largely to the English Methodist revivals, of which I've told you about, of which George Whitfield, John and Charles Wesley, and others, in the revivals that came in the, uh, the great turning among thousands uh, that came to know Christ during those revivals. And therefore, some historians have said that is part of the reason why England did not sink into that kind of revolution that France experienced, which the French Revolution was a rebellion against God in wholesale form. You know, in this regard, what do revivals uh, bring. Let me just uh, mention one. For example, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Welsh, Welsh revival in England in 1904 and 1905. Uh, the the London Times regarding that revival 
observed. It, here's what the London Times said in 1904-1905. It said the whole population had been suddenly stirred by a common impulse. Religion had become the absorbing interest of their lives. They had gathered at crowded services for six and eight hours at a time. Now, you think we're long. Six and eight hours they would gather for praying, preaching. It says political meetings and even football matches were postponed. And quarrels between trade union workmen, that's pretty significant, and non-unionists had been made up. There wasn't a quarreling going on like it was. It said that coal miners uh, crowded into prayer meetings that lasted until 3 a.m. in the morning. And when washed and breakfast, they returned to work. It says many drunkards confessed their sins and received Christ. According to the London Times, February 2nd, 1905, Due to the Welsh revival, many men abandoned dens of iniquity. Employers noticed a great improvement in the work produced by their employees. A judge named Sir Merchant Williams said that his work was a lot lighter because he wasn't having to deal with all these related offenses anymore. And then it says profane swearing stopped to a large degree. And it said even the miners' horses had problems obeying because they were always obeying to the profane orders. So when they weren't giving profane orders, the horses didn't know what to do. <laughs> they had to be retrained. Ain't that something? <clears throat> so what, what is happening here? Because of God's transforming work, because salt adds taste, Christians when God goes to work in a culture and he brings that revival, all of society is transformed for a time. That's why if salt loses its savor, what are you going to do with it again? Nothing. It's worthless. You know, rather than the great post-millennial hope that pictures... World peace there in Isaiah 2. Why is that the case? Because the church is the salt of the earth to the magnitude when it says that the nations will stream to Mount Zion to learn the ways of God. What is the effect upon the culture? Internationally, it says this. They will beat their swords into plowshares and learn war no more. There is coming a time when the influence of the church as the salt of the earth is going to be of such magnitude that it's going to have that pervasive of an influence. You see, that's how important we are as the church, as the salt of the earth. Preserving the, uh, the culture from sinking into further degradation and then providing the positive attitude and so isn't it wonderful? And all facets of society were benefited when these great revivals happened. That's why we need to keep praying for God to send that kind of revival in our time. When a person has been truly transformed by the power of God, it does reflect and show itself around them. They are salt. 
Now, so, again, we ask ourselves this question, question. Am I having that kind of positive influence of the people that I'm around? So, first of all, do people know that you're a Christian? That's the first thing you have to ask. Do they know you're a Christian? And then if you're, as you, as they find out you're a Christian, does it make a difference in how they relate to you? Are things different because you're there? You know, there's a passage, turn to Colossians 4, look at verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned, as it were, with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. And so in everything that we do in our speech before others, uh, we are to reflect a godly character so that in our speech it has a preserving quality. It is a positive quality. It adds savor. Uh, that's why the Bible talks about, it says, how apt is a timely word given in a, in a time of need, uh, that we encourage people with our words instead of tearing people down. Uh, that's how we allow our speech to be seasoned with salt. That's how we are the salt of the earth. And then, of course, Jesus said there in, in Matthew 5.13, look, the warning is very serious. He says, if salt is not salt anymore, it's worthless. Now, what he's saying, if salt ceases to be salt, it's worthless. Now, what he's saying here is he's again distinguishing between those that nominally call themselves Christians and those who really are. Because the real thing will manifest itself. And there are those that give a pretension of being part of it, but they aren't really salt. You know, that's why it's, it's a very serious thing when those who profess Christ are more like the world than they are like Christ. That is a serious thing. What that essentially is saying, they're no longer salt. And what Jesus is saying, it's lost. See, the, the professing of Christ is like being salt that has lost its savor, and therefore it's worthless. And it's good only to be trampled under, Jesus said. And that's why I began with that passage in 2 Corinthians 13, <clears throat> that we must examine ourselves. Do we not recognize this about ourselves, that Jesus Christ is in us, unless indeed we fail the test. Well, we're not only said to be the salt of the earth, Jesus said we're also the light of the world as well. And that we must shine before the world. And you and I are only as light as because Jesus is light. Because Jesus is light, we are light. And we're going to take a look at quite a few passages here uh, to demonstrate to you just how important it is to be a light to the world. So we're going to just go through passages, and I'll elaborate upon these passages and just how important it is to be a light to the world. And as Jesus says, the light is intended not to be put under a bushel, but it's to be put on a lampstand that will shine into the darkness, and that men must see our light, and if they see our light, then they will glorify, they will see our good works, and they will glorify our fathers in heaven. 
Well, let's take a look at several passages. <clears throat> Turn, first of all, to John chapter 1 and look at verses 4 and 5. Talking about Jesus here, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So Jesus is the light, and that light is shining. Jesus as the light actually is that which brings life to men. Because Jesus is light, it brings life to men. The world cannot comprehend this. And it really doesn't. The world doesn't understand really what a Christian is. Then turn over to John eight twelve. Again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have what? The light of life. That tells us again that Jesus, as the light, provides that life quality to man. Turn over to John chapter 12. Look at verse 36. While you have the light... Believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light. And then look at John twelve forty six. I have come as light into the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. Now, when Jesus said there in John twelve thirty six, he says, you're the light, believe in the light. If, if the light's around, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light. Remember I mentioned earlier how important it is uh, that you have the preaching of the word of God. How do we believe in Jesus? As the scripture says, through the preaching of the gospel, primarily. If you don't have the preaching of the gospel in the culture, how are they going to believe? Now, it's true you can become a Christian by reading the Scriptures. But the primary thrust in the, in the Scriptures is, as Romans says, it says, how shall they hear and how will they believe without a preacher? Someone telling them the gospel. So that's why it's a serious thing when, God, when there's a famine of the Word of God. If there's a famine of the Word of God and there's not anybody preaching the, the gospel, Jesus says, how are you going to become a son of the light? How are you going to believe in me? You can't. So, as we believe in the light, we become sons and daughters of the light. So the Bible, now notice how the Bible speaks of unbelievers. It speaks of unbelievers as residing in the darkness, right? Jesus says that the light of the world, the, the world is in darkness. It doesn't comprehend the light. And, and when the Bible talks about conversion to Christ, it talks about us being transferred. And here's the terminology, and it's important. We're transferred out of the domain of darkness into his marvelous light. That's how the Bible talks about conversion. Well, let's see how the Old Testament and the New Testament uses this and speaks of light as opposed to darkness. So turn to Psalm 43. And look at verse 3. Oh, send out thy light and thy truth. 
Let them lead me, let them bring me to thy holy hill and to thy dwelling places. So it talks about the light bringing men to that truth, bringing men to God's holy hill. Turn over to Psalm 89, look at verse 15. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. O Lord, they walk in the light of thy countenance. So what that is telling us is that God is light, as we'll see a passage in a moment that explicitly says that, but talks about the light of thy countenance. That presence with God, being in the presence of the living God, brings light. The light of thy countenance. In fact, 1 John 1.5, turn over to 1 John 1.5, here's what it says. And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. That God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, when the Bible uses light and darkness, one of the uh, ways it's using it is referring to moral uh, righteousness, moral goodness, as opposed to moral evil. God is light, and it says, and here the, the original language is really useful, it says, in God is light, and there is and here's how the text the Greek says it. Absolutely, unequivocally, no darkness, period. The most uh, emphatic way you can make a deny, a negative, is what the Greek says here. There is no darkness at all with God. He is light. Uh, the scripture, 1 Timothy, talks about God dwelling in inapproachable light. And all that is meaning is that God is pure holiness. And that's why we have to be absolutely perfect in order to get into heaven. Now, we've said in order to get into heaven, you have to have your sins forgiven, and you have to have that perfect life that only the righteousness of Christ imputed to you can you get it. Because Habakkuk says, thy... thy you are too pure, O oh God, to tolerate sin in thy presence. Why? Because God is light, and in him there is no darkness. He will have fellowship with no darkness at all. Now, Isaiah has some wonderful uh, words here. Turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Look at verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the land will shine on them. Now, do you remember where that passage was quoted? As we go through uh, Matthew chapter 4, where uh, it talks about when Jesus went to Galilee of the Gentiles, to Zeb the land of Zebulun, and it quotes Isaiah 9-2. We made a comment then when we preached through that section that <clears throat> that area of Galilee was known for its sinfulness. And therefore, when Jesus comes, it is bringing, it is, a, it is answering the prophecy of Isaiah saying, A great light has shone to the people. 
What a privilege for the light to show up with Jesus. Take a look at Isaiah 42. And look at verses 1 through 7. Now this has a meaning with reference to anytime the word servant, it's a referring to the Messiah. But then if you'll notice as we go through here, it is relating as well to his church that is in union with him. So he says here, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gave breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from the prison, I am the Lord, that is my name. Now that has reference to, do, to deal with not only primarily to Jesus as the light of the world, but it has to do with all those in union with him, his church. Look over at Isaiah 49, look at verse 6. He says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may be reached to the ends of the earth. So as Jesus is the light, and he's the light of the world, he's the one that's shining in darkness. And we, in union with him as his church, we are the proclaimers of that light. To where? To the coastlands. To, to all the nations. To all the nations. And as we reach those nations with the gospel, then men come out of darkness into God's light. So it talks about the importance of us being in true union with Jesus, because Jesus, remember, in John 15 says, uh, the branch can do nothing apart from the vine. And it says, you can do nothing apart from me. And as Jesus is the light of the world, and as I am the light of the world, you are the light of the world, as the church is the light of the world, then the nations will be impacted. Not maybe, they will. So the Bible presents salvation in terms of being delivered out of darkness into God's marvelous light. Now I want us to take a look at some of the great passages that demonstrate when God converts people, he takes them out of darkness into his light. Let's take a look. 
for example, turn to, well, turn first to Psalm 112. I'll show you similarities to some of the Psalms of the Old Testament with some New Testament passages. Psalm 112, look at verse 4. Light arises in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and compassionate and righteous. Now, that's no minor thing. We have to ask this question. Is God under any obligation to be the light to those in darkness? Is he under any moral obligation? The answer is no. God's under no obligation. That's why Romans 9 says that in God's justice, if he condemned us all, it would be to the glory of his justice. But he doesn't condemn us all. He comes to some of us with his light. And when he comes to us with his light, what that is, is a coming to us with his compassion. He's showing compassion to us. Do you think it was important when it says there in Matthew 4, when, it's, when Jesus went to Galilee of the Gentiles, it says a great light shone to those who were walking in darkness. It was a privilege for Jesus to be there. It was a privilege for the people in Galilee to have Jesus and the disciples who preached the gospel to them. So anytime there is the preaching of the word of God, God is showing his grace and he's showing his compassion to people. Because he doesn't have to. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at verses 3 through 6. And if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case... The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see what the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord and ourselves is your bondservants for Jesus sake. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who is shown in our hearts. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's a beautiful passage of showing God's grace and mercy. Because we are slaves of the devil here. We are slaves of the devil in our natural state. We have our minds blinded. It says we have been blinded. So that we cannot see what? We can't see the light of the gospel. See, the only reason why men believe in the gospel is because God has had mercy upon them. That's the only reason. The only reason. Paul says we don't preach ourselves, we preach Jesus. And when we preach Jesus, you know what God does? In the lives of those whom he's going to save, the light shines And it says, in our hearts to give us what? The light of the knowledge of the Lord. That's why that great hymn, Amazing Grace. That we have been delivered. We see, whereas once we were blind. 
You know, that's the whole ministry of gospel preaching, is bringing light out of darkness. Turn to what Paul says was his entire ministry. Turn over to Acts chapter 26. And look what he says there in verse 18. Here's was Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. Remember, Paul was shown the light. Isn't that interesting in the conversion of Paul? A great light shone, and it knocked him off his horse, and it was Jesus coming to him. And he, who was the great persecutor of the church, saw the light that day and was converted. And in his conversion, Jesus said, and he told Ananias, who was to baptize him and restore his sight, because he was blinded temporarily, physically. And Ananias says, now wait a minute, this is salt, the great persecuted church. And here's what Jesus says to Ananias. He says, now wait a minute, he is a chosen instrument of mine to the Gentiles. God, Jesus, was going to make the great persecutor of the church the apostle to the Gentiles, to bring the light to the Gentile world. So Paul is remembering what Jesus said here of his ministry. And here's what he says in verse 18. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. That was his ministry. And it's wonderful how it portrays it. Open men's eyes. See, when that gospel is preached, and when God goes to save, he opens men's eyes to the glory of the gospel. But you've got to have a preacher to preach it. And Paul says, I'm that preacher to the Gentiles. There in verse 23 of Acts 26, it says, That the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he should be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And what that simply means, you know, with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus magnified his presence exponentially, did he not, when he ascended into heaven? Because when he ascended into heaven, what did he do? He gave gifts to men. And what are some of those gifts? The preaching of the gospel. And so, and it's all due to the resurrection. Because Jesus is risen, he has power. And that's why in the Great Commission, brethren, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, notice how Jesus prefaced it. We had always known the Great Commission. Go, therefore, to all the nations and disciple them, baptize them, and lo, I'm with you always. That's important. But that is you separate verses 19 and 20 from verse 18, then you've lost the whole thrust. Because in verse 18 of Matthew 28, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore. Go therefore. 
because I have all authority. So when Jesus was raised from the dead, that's when Jesus said, in, before the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, in Acts 1.8, he says, You shall be witnesses of mine, not only in Jerusalem, but in Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. The fact that I'm raised, I'm going to come to all the nations. Through you, through your preaching, I will come with my saving grace in my compassion, and I will deliver men out of darkness into light. And, and turn to First Peter 2. Look what our responsibility and do as a result of God's work in our lives. First Peter chapter 2. Look at verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you, what? Out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Why should you tell somebody about Jesus? You may not be a preacher or ever become a preacher, but why should you tell somebody about Jesus? Because you've been delivered. You've been shown mercy. You were once not a people. But now you're the people of God. God didn't have to come to you. God could have left you in your darkness. He was under no obligation to save you. The fact that He saved you you owe him his life, your life. And you, your, your life is much better. You have meaning and hope in life. And therefore, all of our responsibilities is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of that darkness. Because that's where you and I were, in darkness. And would have remained in darkness if it were not for his saving grace. Look at Acts thirteen forty seven. Paul and Barnabas, in their missionary activities, they first always went to the synagogues, to the Jews. And why was that? Well, Romans 1 says, it says, <clears throat> we take the gospel to the Jews first. Why the Jews first? Well, they're the ancient covenant people of God. That's why. We're going to give them the privilege. They're the ancient covenant people. But when the Jews rejected the, the gospel, what does Paul say? Verse 40, let's start with 40, verse 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For thus the Lord has commanded us, I placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you should bring salvation to the end of the earth. Now, I read that passage to you earlier in Isaiah 49. How the gospel was promised to go to the nations. And here, because the Jews rejected it, Paul says, I'll take it to the Gentiles. And guess what? The Gentiles were readily willing to receive that word. You see, as children of the light, we should naturally want to tell other people 
about the light. See, I should never have to convince you about doing evangelism. Hey, I didn't know much. I didn't know much when the Lord saved me out of darkness. But you know what? One of the first things I wanted to do when the Lord saved me in Utah and I transferred back to Tennessee, all my high school buddies that were several were agnostics like me, I wanted to go tell them about Jesus. Now, I still didn't know a lot of verses in the Bible. But I had this desire, well, I'm going to tell them the good news. And you know what shocked me was? Because most of my friends, they were merit scholars. Some of them, I don't know, uh, I took the ACT. And a perfect score is 36 on the ACT. I forget what it is on the SAT. But I had several of my friends score perfect on the ACT, and I thought, what in the world are you doing scoring perfect on the ACT? Now, I acknowledge along the way that in some regards they were smarter than me, but then I found out in a certain way they weren't smarter than me when, in, a, in, a, in the truest sense, because when I went and talked to them about Jesus, they would have nothing to do with it. And you know what bothered me for the longest time was, now wait a minute. It should be obvious to these bright guys, and when I tell them, they ought to believe. It should be obvious. And when they didn't, it bothered me. Until I learned some more verses, well, (laughs) it's not about this intellect of scoring so high. It's about having the light of the knowledge of the gospel. And it has nothing to do with the IQ. Nothing. At least IQ big enough to understand, believe in Jesus and you shall be saved. Now, you've got to have the IQ enough to believe that. You see, <clears throat> I tell the people, you want to tell, if you're a Christian, you want to tell people the good news. There's some song, it says, i got to tell somebody. i got to tell somebody. we got to tell somebody because Jesus means that much to us. Because we've been delivered out of darkness. Why did I want to tell somebody? Because I was in darkness. I want them to be out of darkness. I don't want them to be in the darkness anymore. Brethren, as children of the light, we are obligated before God to testify to the light And to walk in the light. Now, we're not to put the light, as Jesus said, under a bushel. Jesus, that doesn't make any sense. Now, what's the, you know, it doesn't take much light to dispel the darkness, does it? I mean, this could be a pitch black room, and I could come in here with a match. And when I, I light that match, there's a lot that's revealed. It doesn't take a lot of light to dispel the darkness. Once light enters, it does an amazing thing. It exposes things. But you and I have an obligation to testify to the light, to walk in the light. So the Christian must be something, the light, in order to manifest something, which is the light. We are to be the light, and we are to manifest the light. If you're a Christian, you should be different. 
and you leave, you come to the light, you should be different by what you say and by what you are. That's the influence that you should have. And now somebody can say, well, <clears throat> I, I let my life... I let my life speak for itself. Well, there's a lot of truth to it. But if that's all that it is, then we haven't gone far enough. Because you see, to testify of something means you've got to say something with your mouth. That's what testifying is. Saying something with your mouth. And when it says that we, as Peter says, when we proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness... That means I've got to tell people what has happened to me. But then along the way, we see that we need to be, not only tell people about the light, we need to be that light. Turn with me to John 3. Look what John 3, 18-21. Jesus says, He who believes in him is not judged. And he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that light is come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So here's the judgment. The light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light. Jesus is the light of the world. And he's come, and what was the response? They hated him. Why did he get, why was he hated? <clears throat> he was hated by the Pharisees. These were the teachers of the law, mind you. Why did they hate the light of the world? Because Jesus was pure holiness, and they worked. They were dead men's bones. They were whitewashed tombs. And his very presence convicted them. And you know why sometimes you're persecuted? And if you're in your workplace or at school, wherever you may be, and you talk about Jesus, or, and uh, they see you as a Christian, and they see there's something different about you, there are going to be people that will hate you just because of that fact. Why? Because you are convicting testimony to them of what they ought to be, but they aren't. And they'll hate you for it. Sad, isn't it? But we're supposed to be that way. You see, the light exposes the deeds of darkness. Jesus exposed life as it were. And you and I do the same. Turn with me to Ephesians 5 and you'll see. Look at Ephesians 5. Look at verses 11 through 13. And do not... Participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. 
For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. Expose the the darkness by your life, by what you say. Who's the last holdout against this continuing slide and this homosexual uh, obsession that we see in our culture? The church. The true church is the holdout. And you think they like us? They don't like us. They hate us. Because we're saying it's wrong. We're exposing their sin for what it is. And they don't like it. They don't want to be told it's an abomination. They don't want to be told they're going to hell if they practice that lifestyle. Therefore, they hate us. But if the church, you see that the damage is done, if the church loses its voice and doesn't call it a sin, then it just confirms people in their walk in darkness. But we're to be the light of the world. We're to expose their sin. Let me uh, end with looking at several quick verses. Not only are you and I to be light bearers, you know, we, we've got to feed on the light. If we don't feed on the light, we're not going to be the kind of witness we ought to be. Let's take a look at a couple of Psalms as we conclude. Turn to Psalm 36, verse 9. For with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light we see light. And what that's telling us is, only in God, in God's light, do we see light. Only when we understand the way God really is, then we see light. Look at Psalm 119, verse 105. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Pull out your bulletin for a moment. Look at the front of your bulletin. That is based deliberately on that passage. It's what it's intended to convey. Thy word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to my path. If you and I want to know how to walk in obedience in this world to God, who is the light, we need to go to his word. We need to go to his word. We need to feed on the light. And the light will show us the way, the path that we ought to take. Look at verse 130. Still in Psalm 119, look at verse 130. The unfolding of thy words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. So back to my story about my friends. I did not view myself as a simpleton. Uh, I did all right. I might have been a B-plus student, but I wasn't like my fellow friends who were, had the IQ that they had. But guess what? I began to realize as I studied the Word, it gave understanding to the simple. It gave understanding to me. And so I understood. <clears throat> and it dawned on me. You know why 
I understood and they didn't because God had mercy on me. And then I realized it wasn't about IQ. It's about having the light of the gospel revealed. And therefore, I magnified the Lord when I realized he came to me in his grace and compassion. And therefore, his words, the unfolding of thy word gives light to all men. How much more blessed it is to know the truth of the word of God. It's magnificent. So, my friend, the Christian is the salt of the earth. The Christian is the light of the world. And if you're not the salt, and if you're not the light, then you've got to ask yourself a serious question. Do I really know Jesus? Do I really know Jesus? Because Jesus says that's the citizen of the kingdom right there. And if I'm not the preserving influence, and if I'm not, if my life isn't making a difference, I really need to step back and reevaluate my life and say, what's wrong? What's wrong? Because people should know that I'm a Christian. Why don't they know I'm a Christian? Why don't I have a positive influence? It could be because I haven't been transferred out of darkness into light. That's what it could be. Let's pray.